That was really my voice singing on that. Elliot was lip-syncing over here. I I'd like you to take a Bible and turn to John chapter 4. It's easy to remember it's page 888 in these pew Bibles. If you turn to John chapter 4. It's a passage that really uh, complements the missions conference and what we'll be turning our attention to next, uh, next week. John chapter 4, I'll read the first uh, 30 verses. Hear God's word. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, Why do you seek? What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So ends the reading of God's holy word. John, the man who writes the Gospel of John, has told us what his purpose is in writing. It comes later 
In chapter 20, he writes, These things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So under the Holy Spirit's guidance, John selected certain stories and events and sermons of Jesus toward the goal, toward the end, that unbelievers would hear them or read them and come to believe because of what was written here. He makes no bones about it. He has an evangelistic purpose in writing. That is his intention. Last week, if you were here, we looked in chapter 3 at a similar conversation Jesus had with a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He was not only a Jewish man, he was a ruler of the Jews. In fact, he was a very well-respected teacher of their faith. Now, when we come to chapter 4, we're not even told the name of this woman. Obviously a woman, not a man, and a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, very in tune and in touch with the details of the law. This woman, apparently from her past, could care less. She's not morally precise at all. Now, why such divergent, opposite characters within two chapters? I think, my opinion is, to show us there's hope for us all. The self-righteous religious person and the social outcast who's been, who's had a disappointing past. It begins with a divine appointment. Let me just quickly go through the passage again. It's, It's somewhat long, and I did not read all of it. The good news, it happens after this and what happens with the townspeople. But there's uh, an appointment that Jesus has with her. Verses 1 and 2 reveal that the uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are hearing about Jesus' rising popularity. They're not happy about it. Jesus takes his disciples, and as he's traveling, he leaves Judea for an area called Galilee. And on his travel, he passes right through Samaria. It tells us in verse 4, middle of the day, probably tired from a long walk. They come to rest there at this well outside this small city called Sychar, this town. And it's at Jacob's well to be exact. It's noon. It's probably hot. The sun's high. His disciples leave to go buy some food in town, and his unsuspecting appointment arrives, carrying a water pot on her head. By the way, in my reading, I found that by the time this happened, this well that had been dug by Jacob was 2,000 years old, and it still supplies water today. So this 4,000-year-old well today is now like 100 feet deep and has been providing water ever since. But in those days, women and others typically drew water when it was cool, early morning, late afternoon, time to visit, time to uh, socialize there. This woman comes at noon. There's been much speculation as to why, perhaps because of her reputation, perhaps because she received the cold shoulder from others. We don't know, but she's by herself. She arrives there, and much to her surprise, Jesus initiates a conversation with her in verse 7. As simple as, give me a drink. He takes the initiative. He displays interest in her. He crosses cultural boundaries, male, female, Jewish, Samaritan, There's long, centuries-old racial tension and even hatred between the Jews and Samaritans. That stigma was very alive, very prevalent in Jesus' day. But he doesn't allow that to stop him from making contact. 
Now, when I was a young Christian, around 15 years of age, I was shown this passage of Scripture. And the person and the people teaching it to me mentioned all of us have divine appointments, that we should never view meeting someone, even seeing someone uh, throughout the day is anything other than a divine appointment that God has brought that about. Many of you, if not all of you, have an entire network of people where God has placed you. And no one else has contact with those people the way you do. I used to think, oh, here's my friend. If only my Christian scholar friend could be here, they could talk to this friend of mine about Christ. It didn't take long to realize God put me there, not the Christian out here that I thought would be such a better expert. God has placed you where you can initiate and develop rapport. Are you praying for people each day? Are you looking for opportunities? Do you look for the occasion when you can say something that might could be of help to a person to understand the gospel and about Christ? Jesus begins with something very simple. Water. The need for water. Simple, easy to understand. She's surprised that this Jewish man, this complete stranger, asked for a drink from her. Normal prejudices of the day would prevent that. And so in verse 9, she says, how can you ask me for a drink? He immediately, in verse 10, moves the conversation in a different direction and mentions living water. She misunderstands in verses 11 and 12. Thought only of the water from this particular well. Since Jacob's well was so deep, how then will you be able to get this living water? You don't even have a bucket. You don't even have a rope here. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus begins to peel back the truth to her, and it's as though he says, whoever drinks from this water, this well, will grow thirsty again, but not from the water I can provide. It will provide continual satisfaction. And verse 14 is a key verse in this entire passage. As he describes this water, let me read you what R.C. Sproul in his book on the Gospel of John says about this. When Jesus speaks of this water springing up, he uses a word that literally means leaping up. The picture he painted was of water so alive, so dynamic, so energetic, so powerful that it would stop thirst, not for a moment, but it would begin to pour up out of the soul of the person and continue to nurture him day after day, year after year. Jesus was using the element of water as a metaphor to describe a spiritual reality, something that would meet not just a need for the moment, but a need for all eternity. She doesn't understand, just like Nicodemus did not understand in the previous conversation about what it meant to be born again. All she can understand is that she wants some kind of spring that will keep her from getting thirsty and having to come here and do this work of drawing this water each day. It's just like Nicodemus. We need to be reminded of how the Bible describes the natural person. If you don't know Christ today, then you and all of us are born into this world what's called spiritually dead. The better way to put it is we are disconnected from God. And the Bible says the natural person, in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person, that is the person who does not know Christ, just the person as we are born, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. They are folly. They are foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
The natural person, this woman at that moment, Nicodemus before, the religious person, is not able to understand. So when Jesus says, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again, his natural response is, how do you go back into your mother's womb? And now he says, I'll give you living water, and she says, you don't have a rope. And we kind of hear that and say, don't they understand? No, they don't understand, because that's the natural mindset. And that's why people we love, and think back to yourself. Some of you came to faith in Christ as children, others as teenagers, others as adults, others very late in life. My father came to, I came to faith in Christ as a teenager. My dad came to faith in Christ in his late 60s. He sat under the preaching, clear preaching of the Bible with Jim Baird in Alabama, hearing him for years. The night before we were going off to seminary, Barbara and I, I was able to explain to him again the gospel. And I said, Daddy, have you ever heard this? He said, Nope. Never heard it before in my life. In his presence, I had heard it many, many times. Now, was that because my dad, who was a lawyer and a judge, was not intelligent? No. Was that because he did not have a good mind or did he have a bad memory? No. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He is not able to understand them. The Bible says we are all born into this life dead in our sins. And because of that, we cannot figure out life without Christ. We, uh, we are all like this woman trying to find meaning and purpose, and we may have various ways to gain it. For her, apparently, it had been through relationships, through marriage, but it can't be done in and of itself. And so for you to make sense of life, you must be able to answer some basic questions. Here's some basic questions. Who made you? It's pretty basic, isn't it? Do you realize the trouble you can get in school by asking that question? Who made me? Why am I here? Where am I going? Does my life have purpose? Basic questions. Can you answer those questions today with confidence? Real confidence that you know without a doubt? I can. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm so smart or because I'm intelligent. I'll tell you my background. I believed as a youngster there was a God. I believed there was a creator because I based that on what I saw when I looked around me. But I did not know him. I was like this container with holes in it, and I was trying out different experiences and different things and putting them in them, but none brought satisfaction. They just kind of drained out. My mother talked to me about Jesus. She took me to a church where some other people talked to me about Jesus, but I didn't know him. I really had no interest. I didn't doubt anything about him. I believed that he really lived. I did not go through a years of agnosticism or skepticism about whether all that was true or not. I recognized my problem of sin. My teachers certainly recognized my problem of sin. My parents recognized it. Then I heard the Bible I heard that the Bible said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I did not doubt that I had sin in my life. The more I learned about God, the more sin I recognized in my life. Lust, anger, hatred, dishonoring my parents, theft, coveting what other people had, just to name a few, just to get started. But then I heard why Jesus died on the cross. That he did so to be a substitute to take my punishment that I deserved on himself. He was punished in my place. 
I believed he died for me. I believed that. I repented. I turned for myself. I turned to God, asked him to make me the person he wanted me to be. In biblical language, at that point, I came to know God. In John 17, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That was, for me in my teens, over 40 years ago, life began to make sense. There was an overarching plan, not only to my life, but purpose in life and the world. It began to make sense because I was no longer a natural man, having tasted the living water, the water Jesus offered. My life, perhaps like your life, could have been described as one person described it. They wrote, Much of our activity these days is nothing more than a cheap anesthetic to deaden the pain of an empty life. Does that mean everybody's miserable? No, of course not. But deeply, ultimately satisfied? No, of course not. And this woman wasn't. Look at verses 16 and 18. Jesus changes the subject. It's one of the most dramatic changes in any conversation in the entire Bible. They're talking about one thing, about living water, and then he says, go get your husband and come back. Now, this is demonstrating a lot to her that Jesus knows everything about her. Can you imagine the shock when he says, oh, I know you're not the guy you're with now, you're not married, you've had five before, and now this fellow you're living with, Betty, uh, uh, your son, Bill Hurd, when he was here years ago on our staff, Bill Hurd, uh, one... Bill was one of our pastors, and one day he went out, took a brown bag lunch, and went out and sat in the park between here and the opera house. And he told me later, a few days later, about a week after this happened, he said, I was seated out there, and I, I had a sandwich, and I ate it. And there was a fella sitting on a bench not far away, and he was looking at me, and he looked like he lived on the street. And this guy finally, looked, after he'd been staring at me for a while, he said, your name's Bill Hurd, and you're, you're one of the pastors at that church right there, First Presbyterian Church. And Bill's like, how do you know that? He said, because I'm an, I'm an angel from God. And he told me that. Well, Bill came, I mean, he was kind of rattled, came, came back. <laughs> said a few days later he was in his office, and he looked up on his bookshelf, and there was that bag he had had the sandwich in that had his name written on it, Bill Hurd. <laughs> <laughs> the fellow had seen him walk out of the church, so he... That was his divine revelation at that point. But this was genuine. Jesus knew all about it. This is no trick. He knew all about her scandalous marital history. Hey, this, was, this is kind of scandalous by, by making standards. I don't know. I'm not going to ask if anybody's been married five times and now living. But this, this is somewhat, I don't know if it'd be scandalous by Hollywood standards, but in Sychar at that time, yeah, let's assume uh, she had been big news. But what's the issue? Why does Jesus, he knows all that before he starts talking with her. He's dealing with her heart, and anything can be an idol. And he sees her failed marriages as symptomatic of needing living water, of needing purpose. There's a thirst in her soul that she has tried to fill with relationships that have broken. And the desire, like us, is try to fulfill that desire, that hole in our hearts, that God-shaped vacuum, as theologian called it. And only the fulfillment that can come from God can do that, because trying to fill it with anything else, marriage, marriage is plural, uh, experiences, pleasure, money, fame, success, 
Success may be to cut yourself off from everybody, having life just exactly the way you want it, to separate yourself, whatever it may be. Isaiah says, why do you spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Why do you pour your life into something that ultimately will not satisfy the thirst of your soul? And that's, what Je- that's where Jesus is going with this. Some say, well, he's just trying to convict her of her sin. I don't think so. I think it's obvious. I think he's dealing with, you've got a thirsty soul, and I'm here to offer you living water. She's still thirsty. She had sought fulfillment in other ways. It had not worked. A few years ago, I came across an interview with Simon Cowell. This was his last year. To show you, it's been a few years. It was the last year he was with American Idol, and he had just signed a deal for $45 million for one season. Okay. The article was an interview that was conducted at his home in California. Here's what the article said. And I had to kind of condense it, but I'm using quotes where they were. I had to cut out some of the things just to make it, to fit it in here. Simon's new Beverly Hills home is actually very, very clean and very black and white. So much that even the imposing gates which shield this $24 million mansion are black and are so highly polished you can see your face in them. Simon loves to laugh. He loves to be entertained. He hates to be bored. He has a television in his bathroom where he watches old cartoons. He says they put him in a good mood and make him laugh out loud. The staff that he has there take care of him. Then he has his guest house, his spa, his pool, his home theater, and a garage which houses his Bugatti, Rolls Royce, Bentley Azure, and Ferrari. He has all the plants shipped in from Palm Springs and sculptures and water features and so forth. And so here is the question. Is Simon Cowell, this wealthy, powerful, successful man, a happy man? In the interviews, he goes on, the interview, he says, I get in very dark moods for no reason. Nothing in particular brings it on. You can be having the best time of your life, and all of a sudden you are utterly, totally miserable. He says, I am a wandering asteroid without a home. I get to the point to where I think I am never going to be happy. Someone said to me recently, you are like a human buffet table. Everyone comes and takes something from you. And at the end, there is nothing left. Even Madonna was recently quoted saying, I have traveled the world many times over. I have performed in soccer stadiums, appeared in films, dined with state leaders, collaborated with great artists, and achieved what most people would view as a high level of success, but I felt something was missing in my life. God created you. Everyone here, whether you realize it or not, he has created you so that you cannot ultimately, ultimately be satisfied in this life with temporary things. The reason is you have an eternal soul. And he wired you, he created you where you cannot be satisfied. That eternal soul cannot be satisfied with something that's temporal. So it will never work to find ultimate satisfaction in this life with anything other than God. She does what many of us perhaps have witnessed. She diverts the attention. He hits on the marriage. He begins to put his finger on the issue in her life that she's not found satisfaction through these relationships. And she shifts into, how about that Super Bowl? Man, didn't Seattle, boy, they put it on Denver, didn't they? I have had this countless times. 
minute something comes up. My grandfather was a minister. My parents, they used to be members down at that church. My cousin's in seminary. So she says, hey, where are we supposed to worship? You Jews say here, Jerusalem. We say Mount Gerizim. What do you think? Jesus answers her, but it's not the answer she's expecting. He says it's not where one worships. It's who and how one worships. And the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He is saying if you think it's just location, you, you don't even begin to understand. I love verses 25 and 26. That's when she says we know that Messiah is coming. This woman knows. She's got a handle. She knows what the Old Testament taught, that God would send a Redeemer, and the prophecies going back to the opening chapters of Genesis. This Redeemer, this one who would come to be our substitute and to, to redeem us from our sins. She knows all of that. In fact, some think, and I tend to agree, that when she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I think she was suspicious at this point, given what Jesus had just said to her. He has told her all things about her. And then with Jesus' response, it could not be clearer. I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the issue, not anything else. Some of you this past week were reading the testimony of Abraham Piper. Uh, John and Noel Piper, John's ministry there at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis and through the Desiring God media with publishing and so forth. His books have ministered to many of us here in this congregation and, and his preaching ministry online and so forth. And they had several children, and their youngest son, Abraham, was very, very prodigal. And at 19 years old, he just had had enough of the church environment, and he walked away for four years or so. And then a number of years ago, he, uh, there was a change. In his testimony, you can find it online many places, and some of you will want to look this up. Abraham Piper testimony. You put that in the search engine, it will get you there. He starts off and he said this. When I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop saying I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical, but really, I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. I love that. I love that because when I have people tell me I'm an atheist now and I don't believe all this and all these reasons, my first question is, you just, you just don't want any moral restraint anymore. And that's, anyway, that's why I love, I love his introduction. Four years of this and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, who are strong believers and who raise their kids as well as any parents I've ever seen, were brokenhearted and baffled. I'm sure they were wondering why the child they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up. But God was in control. One Tuesday morning before 8 a.m., I went to the library to check my email. I had a message from a girl I'd met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in Romans I went down to the Circle K, bought a 40-ounce can of Miller for $1.29. Then I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading Romans. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't find where it was, so I started at the beginning of the book. 
By the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. He then goes on to describe a little bit of what's happened since then, and he gives 12 suggestions for parents who have wayward children. Excellent. I recommend it. But in conclusion, have you received the living water? As we look at this story, we can see it from the perspective of Jesus. We can see it from the perspective of the woman. If you are empty and you honestly don't know Christ personally, then like this woman, you need, you need this gift of eternal life. You need this living water, and it's free. And you don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't have to wait 10 years for it. Believe, put your faith in Jesus, turn to him. And for followers of Christ, you that are disciples, we are given the incomparable offer to work side by side, sharing in the harvest. Never, never, never underestimate small things. The whole city of Sychar, within a short time, is evangelized because of this five times married woman and a brief testimony. As a result of that one conversation, something as mundane as, give me some of the water. How many lives might you touch because you had one conversation and got involved with someone about something mundane and ordinary? Let's pray together. Oh God, we, we pray to you, our creator. We pray that if any of us here for the first time maybe are starting to have the lights turn on, pray that you'd give us this living water, faith to believe. Often our faith is weak. We have so many unanswered questions. We are perplexed with your ways. But we pray that we would trust what Jesus did and that it was for me, it was for us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.